Genesis chapter number 25, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 19. The Word of God says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. After that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father... Lord, I'd ask that you glorify your Son in the preaching. Lord, above and beyond everything, that He'd be glorified. All that we're to do is to be to your glory. Lord, the preeminent thing tonight is that Jesus Christ be glorified. And that's what we ask for above and beyond anything. Lord, then we ask that our hearts would be spoken to. Lord, that you'd do in us that which we cannot do for ourselves, that which we can't do through energy, and uh, that which we cannot do through determination or resolve. We pray, Lord, that you do it through the moving of the Holy Ghost and that we'd surrender to Him. Lord, we pray that each and every heart would be affected and that we'd draw closer to You. Lord, we love You tonight. We thank You for loving us. We thank You for that great show of love to the lost sinner, the cross of Calvary. Help us to convey that love to a lost and dying world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter number 7. And as you make your way there, I want to say a word about what we've read tonight. Over the past two Sunday nights, we've preached a series with this idea at its source, contrary the one to the other. Now, I'm not preaching tonight about yin and yang. I'm not preaching tonight about an intrinsic good or necessarily an intrinsic evil. But I'm preaching tonight about the struggle that takes place within the believer after he's been born again between the old nature and the new nature. We have seen over the past two Sunday nights how in three sets of brothers their struggle took place. We began by looking at Cain and Abel. We looked at the contrary approach between the flesh and the spirit in our appeal to God. Abel, in being made righteous before the eyes of God, could plead only the shed blood. And let me say that the only way you'll get saved is by the shed blood. You may get church some other way. You may get religious some other way. The only way you'll get saved is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Cain, when he sought to come to the Lord and be made righteous, he brought the fruit and works of his own hand said, I know God has prescribed a different means, but I think I know a little bit more than God knows. And I think what I've got is worth a little bit more than what God thinks it's worth. So I'm going to bring it to the Lord, and I'm going to expect Him to have respect unto my offering. You know, that's just like this lost and dying world. 
We take the filthy rags of our righteousness. We put them on just as good as we know how. We try to clean up the best that we can. We try to walk the way that we think we ought to walk and talk the way that we think we ought to talk. We go before God and we say, Lord, I've tried my best. Isn't that good enough? Let me say tonight that in the realm of salvation, your best is not good enough. Uh, Your good intentions are not good enough. You've got to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your best is not as good as His best. Your best is not good enough to satisfy the holy wrath of God. And then the following week, we preached on two other brothers by the name of Isaac and Ishmael. And the first two brothers showed us the faith, uh, showed us the flesh and the spirit in their appeal to God. And Isaac and Ishmael showed us the flesh and the spirit in our approach unto God and unto serving God. How do we serve God? Let me say that just as we are saved by grace, we serve by grace too. We don't serve through just mere determination and result. I'm not saying that we ought not have some determination and resolve, but determination and resolve in and of themselves without the power and leading of the Spirit of God is not enough. And Isaac is a picture of living the Christian life according to the strength and power of the promises of God. He was the son of promise. Ishmael is an example of living according to the energies of the flesh and serving God according to the energy of the flesh. Let me say, nothing is more dissatisfying than trying to serve God in the arm of the flesh. Nothing will make you more miserable than trying to serve God through your own strength. You'll get burnt out, you'll get bitter, you'll get angry, and you'll quit before the sun goes down trying to serve God through the energy of your own flesh. But tonight I want us to look at two other brothers by the name of Jacob and Esau. Both of these brothers had name changes. Both of these brothers were the fathers of nations. But you couldn't pick, and by the way, both these brothers were twins. But you couldn't pick two brothers that were more different, both in their personalities and in their histories, than Jacob and Esau were. I want to preach to you for a few moments on the flesh and the spirit, how contrary they are one to another, in our appetite for life. The things that we love, the things that we cherish, the things that we seek to satisfy us, there is an opposite and there is a struggle and a paradox that is taking place between the flesh and the spirit. The Word of God tells us this, that the spirit and the flesh lust one against another. They're contrary one to another. Let me say that you can't satisfy your spiritual man and satisfy your carnal man at the same time. You've got a choice to make. You can't satisfy your carnal man and satisfy your spiritual man at the same time. The Bible says that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A choice has to be made betwixt the two. You know, Paul, I think, summed this up for us in a pretty concise way. In Romans chapter 7. I want you to look down at verse number 14. Now, we're not really going to preach on this, but uh, maybe this will shed some light on Romans chapter 7 for you because that's sort of what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 14. Word of God says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul, talking about himself in his natural state, he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul's saying, my natural man doesn't belong to me. My natural man is in bondage unto sin. I am carnal. I am unrighteous. He said it this way, that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now, notice what he says. This is going to be confusing if you don't pay attention to your Bible. So unless you want to be confused, not know where you're at in a few seconds, pay close attention to your Bible. It says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would... That do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now let me pause there, and some of you are saying, I'm, I was paying attention, I'm still confused. <laughs> what Paul is talking about is the struggle that takes place between the two natures. He says, I want to do what's right, but I just don't ever seem to do it. He said, I don't want to do what's wrong, but it seems like I'm always doing that which is wrong. He says, if I do my best to try to do the right thing, but find I'm still doing the wrong thing, he says that I can sin under the law that it's good. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm out of control. 
My natural man is out of control. I'm a lawless individual. And evidently, a lawless individual needs a law to keep him reined in. Evidently, the law for our natural condition was a good thing because it kept us reined in. Look what he says. Verse number uh, 17, he says, Now, then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul's not trying to pass the buck. What he's saying is this, I have a heart to do the right thing, but then I have a sinful nature that is battling me consistently. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Boy, don't that sound like you and I sometimes. Christ said it this way whenever He came and uh, caught the disciples napping at the garden prayer meeting. He said that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a willingness. I think so oftentimes we have a tendency to always judge a person's intentions by the results. Now let me say this. You may have good intentions, but it's the results that matter. But just because your results don't line up, that doesn't mean you didn't have good intentions either. Paul is dealing with this very truth. He's saying, I want to do right. I think I should do right. I know that I should do right. But when I try to do right, I still continue to do wrong. There is a battle that is within me. I have a desire to do good, but I can't find the way to do it. He says in verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. He says, it seems like the harder I try, the more ground I seem to lose. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law. Now, you know what a law is. That's an immutable, unchangeable principle. He says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Then he cries out almost. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul's describing the inner struggle of the believer, the spiritual man against the carnal man, the natural man. And in these two brothers of Jacob, and that wasn't my message. Some of y'all looking for me to close now. Don't get excited. But Paul sums up this struggle that is taking place. And just as we can look into the New Testament for clarification, we can all the time, oftentimes look into the Old Testament for amplification. And in the life of Jacob and Esau, we see the amplification of these truths. Now I want you to go back to Genesis 25, and I want to just talk about a few of these things. I'm going to do my best to be quick and to be speedy and uh, to get us out of here. Uh, But I find a law that is present within me that what I would, that I do not. So don't get too excited. Amen. Genesis chapter 25 again. And I want you to look with me at verse number 19. Now we read this, but we're going to read it again because it's important. Amen. Verse number 19 says this. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so... Why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, I want you to notice, first off, their brawling that was taking place. Now, how many of you have had kids? Amen? I mean, more than one. Amen? Because... Just one don't count hardly. We've got one, and between the two of us, we can usually keep him wrangled. Once you have two, they tend to fight, and they tend to fuss, and they're just, you know, they're hateful creatures, children are. And, I mean, I love my child with all my heart, but he's a hateful creature sometimes. And children fight and fuss. That's what they do. They're good at it. If you get paid for it, they'd be millionaires. They're good at it. If there's something to disagree about, they'll disagree about it. They'll sit in the back of the car, and they'll just poke each other to have something to argue about. That's how children are. But notice that this brawling that took place took place before their birth ever took place. 
This is something that is supernatural, this brawling that is taking place. I'm not saying that it's unheard of for twins to wrestle in the womb, but evidently it was to such a degree. I mean, listen, you thought you was sliding around on this ice. Imagine how Rebecca must have felt with these two boys just turning cartwheels and wrestling and struggling within her. It's so noticeable that she knows what's taking place. She can feel the malice. She can feel the ill will. She can feel the hostility that is taking place within her. And she says something interesting. She says, if it be so, why am I thus? Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Why is that interesting? What is she saying there? She knows that she's gotten something from the Lord. She understands that these children are a gift of the Lord. She was barren. There was no way that she could have children. There was no way that she could produce uh, any heirs for Isaac. And then Isaac prays to the Lord, and the Lord hears, and the Lord answers, and God touches her body, and God does a miracle within her. And now all of a sudden she has children. What a miracle had taken place. But can I say that in your life and in my life, when we got saved, a far grander and greater miracle took place. I mean, I know the TV preachers that are trying to sell you uh, squares of their suit. They're going to tell you you ain't never going to have any problems. They're going to tell you that if you run on difficult times, it's simply because you're, you're out of the will of God. And, you know, they never have any problems, you know. And they, they don't have any money problems. Everybody send them all their money instead of sending it to the local church. Amen. And oftentimes they'll say, well, it's because you're out of the will of God or it's because there's something wrong in your life. Let me tell you something. They would look with a frown upon Rebecca. And oftentimes they'd look with a frown upon me and you because the problems in our life. You know what she's saying. She's saying, God, if you love me and if you've worked in my life, then why is there a struggle that's still taking place? It's not uncommon for a Christian to ask the very same thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, listen now. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the moment that God saved us, He eradicated our old flesh, He took away every desire to ever do a wrong thing, and He fixed us in every way, shape, fashion, and form, not just in the positional sense, but also in the practical sense? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the moment we got up from the altar, God give us a glorified body and took away any desire to sin? Oh, how glorious that would be. But can I remind you, that's not the reality of the Christian life. Just because you get saved, that doesn't mean that your desire to sin goes away. Hey, uh, sin will have a bitter taste when you commit it, but don't think for one moment that your flesh will forget how sweet it tasted to it. There will always be a struggle within anyone to do that which is right and that which is righteous. This struggle was taking place within Rebecca and she's puzzled. God, you've done something in my life, so why is there an inward struggle taking place? You know, that's true for me and you. These boys, before they could ever lay eyes on each other, they were fighting, they were feuding before they could ever speak. And by the way, doesn't that tell you something? Doesn't that tell you that this controversy was intrinsic? Doesn't that tell you that that had to do with these boys' natures? They say of the Hatfield and McCoy feud, and I know you, you know, they do all this stuff on it, so you know it now. It's ruined a bunch of preacher illustrations. You know, preachers tell illustrations to feel smart. Amen? We scour books for stuff that you don't know so we can tell you and we seem smart. When the Hatfield and McCoy feud started... It was said that it was started over the sale of a pig. And I don't know that I don't know what denomination they were, but that's a Baptist story if I've ever heard one. Amen. Started over the feud of a pig. But really that wasn't what it was about, was it? There was a hatred. I mean, if somebody had came along and, uh, and looked and said, Hey, listen, Mr. McCoy, we'll buy you a pig. We'll buy you ten pigs if you'll just drop this feud uh, with uh, Devil Ann's Hask that field. I promise you, Randall McCoy would have looked at him and said, It's not about the pig. It's about something deeper. The feud between your flesh and your spirit. Listen, it's, it's, not, it's not just about the material things. It's not just about the surface things. Understand that your natural man hates your spiritual man. Your spiritual man hates your natural man. They'll never be in tune. Listen now, they'll never be in sync. They'll never make friends. But one of these days, the book of Philippians tells us that God is going to change this vile body to be made like unto His glorious body, the body of the flesh, that which is physical, that which is decaying, that which is temporal, the old old man, the natural man. Listen, his death sentence was passed upon Calvary. He was nailed to the cross of Calvary. And his uh, day of judgment, his day of eradication is coming. They're never going to make nice, but God's going to take it away one day when He gives us a glorified body. This brawling was intrinsic. had to do with a hatred one against the other. And your natural man always loathes to do that which is spiritual. I didn't say your natural man always loathes to do that which is moral, and there's a difference. 
It's interesting that they're... I, I thought this is interesting. Now, some of y'all, this is going right over your head. I mean, so, so quick, you'll lose hair over it. But, but some of you, you'll get this. You understand that Jacob and, and Esau, they were both the children of Isaac. Isaac is a picture of the promise of God. Well, there comes a time, and I, I don't know that we'll, we'll touch on it, but maybe we will. There comes a time uh, Esau was a great disappointment to his parents. They did everything they could to make excuses for him and to try to love him, in particular Isaac. Do you know what takes place? He takes to, to wife uh, some of the, the daughters of the Canaanites, and it grieves his father. And so to try to make up for it, he goes to Ishmael and finds one of Ishmael's daughters and takes to wife some of Ishmael's people. Let me say this, that when the carnal man wants to do a religious thing, he does it through the energies of his own flesh. The natural man, the carnal man, he wanted to impress that which was spiritual. But listen to me, he could not, he could not do anything but create a counterfeit of spirituality. Why is that? Because the natural man cannot respond to the Spirit of God. The natural man knows nothing of communication with the Spirit of God. My greatest fear is that what we have in many churches today is nothing but dressed up Sunday morning religious flesh that's just as rotten, that's just as putrid, that's just as offensive to the nostrils of God as the harlot on the street or as the drunk in the bar. I believe God says it's wicked. And He's disgusted by it. That's the best the flesh can do is to try to do that in its own strength and in its own... I don't even know where we're at in the outline anymore. I'm having fun. I hope you are. We see they're brawling. I want you to notice the second thing. Look at verse number 24. The Bible says, "...and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled..." Behold, there were twins in her womb. By the way, hey, this isn't, this isn't what I'm preaching on, but I just, I mean, I was reading and I caught it with my peripheral vision. Can I just say what a blessed promise it is in verse 23 where it says, And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. What another blessed promise that it is to know that one of these days, if you're saved by the grace of God, the flesh will not get the ultimate victory in your life. There's coming a day when him who has passed through death and came through the other side because he wasn't able to be holding of it is going to change us. And this corruptible shall put on incorruption. Man, I mean, I just, I was walking by and, and I saw it down there and I said, I've got to pick that up and throw it at them. They'll like that. Amen. Okay, look again. Verse 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Notice not only their brawling, but notice their birth. They were both as twins born at the same time. Commentators uh, say that there was such a struggle at that moment of birth that actually Esau reached his arm out of the womb and they say uh, that, that the maid that was there and assisting in the birth took a ribbon and tied it around his hand to show that he was literally and technically the first one born because they didn't know which baby was going to be born first. Some of you ladies say, thank God I'm not Rebecca. Amen. The struggle was so real within her. But when they're born, notice what the Bible says about their birth. A lot of things the Bible could say. But we have these reminders all through the text. And you know what these reminders tell us? These reminders always tell us that Esau has always been Esau, and he'll always be Esau. And it gives us a description of it. The Bible says that he was red all over like a hairy garment. Isn't it interesting? Listen now carefully to this. Isn't it interesting that when he was born, he was red all over? When he picked something to eat, he picked something that was red. And after that, the name they called him by was Edom, which means red. Their birth, it's indicative that at their birth, they were what they would always be. There was a struggle that was taking place. Even then, the Bible says that whenever they were born, uh, that after he came out, that that, uh, Jacob, his hand took hold 
on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Now, we, we know what the name Jacob means most of. It means supplanter, trickster, deceiver. But can I say that we have a tendency to always look at that in a bad light? And let me say it is in the Bible, presented oftentimes in a bad light. But in this case, I think there's something beautiful within that. You know what it tells me? It tells me that even at birth and all the way through his life, Jacob was always trying to get the upper edge on Esau. You say, preacher, that's just a brotherly quarrel. That's what brothers do. Oh, I understand that. But I think there's something uh, that's indicative about this. I think God's telling us something about this. I think what God's telling us is this, that when a person saved, the spiritual man always tries to get the upper hand on the flesh. What does the Bible say about a righteous man? That though he falls seven times, he'll be lifted back up. He'll get back up. Can I say, now listen now, I'm not saying that we don't get out in the world. I'm not saying that we don't live carnally. I'm not saying we don't get out of the will of God. And I'm not saying there don't come a time when God lets us live in sin. I'm aware that He does that. But you listen to me. If you're saved by the grace of God, your days of sinning without conviction and without guilt are over. There will always be a reminder. Jacob will always be a reaching for Esau's heel. And there will always be a reminder that what you're doing is wrong. That's the beautiful thing about the Spirit of God and the Word of God is that they convict us when we do wrong. We need that. Whether we admit it or not, we need that. That's what's different. It's not Jiminy Cricket. It's the Spirit of God. For the believer, that is. For the believer, it's the Spirit of God. That's who's telling you that you've sinned. That's who's telling you that you've done something wrong. Isn't it interesting that when, they, when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, you know what God asked them? God said, who told you you was naked? There's never really an answer that's explicitly given. You say, how do we know who told them that they were naked? Well, the same person that always tells us when we've sinned. The same person that always tells us when we're wrong. That's the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. It was the Holy Ghost told them that. Came along and said, don't you realize that you've sinned? Don't you know you have something to be ashamed of? It's not that we don't sin after we get saved, but it's that we've got somebody that comes along and says, don't you know you ought to be ashamed of what you've done wrong? Let me say this. We can never get away from Him. We always quote Hebrews chapter 3. He'll never leave us nor forsake. And that's a blessed promise. But listen now, that's a burdening promise in some ways too. That tells us something. That tells me that the Spirit of God, He'll never depart from us. He'll never... I understand that the power of the Spirit of God in a particular way can leave a person's life. I understand that the blessing of the Spirit of God can leave a person's life in a particular way. I understand that in a sense, the peace of the Spirit of God can leave our lives in a particular way. But don't you think for one moment that God's ever just going to leave you alone. You're His. You belong to Him now. And He's going to deal with you when you've sinned and done wrong. Notice not only their birth, but look at verse number 27. Notice their boyhood. And the boys grew. That's what boys do. They grow, they eat, they smell bad. The boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, you say, uh, you say, preacher, what's the significance of that? Well, there again, we have another reminder that these boys are different we have another reminder that the qualities of their nature were not something that were learned. They were something that was intrinsic to their personality. Now, I've heard this my whole life. I've heard it preached. And, and, and it could be true. I'm not saying it's not true. But I think we're missing the point whenever we, we read this and this is all we get out of I've heard my whole life people read these verses. They say, well, you know, that tells us that Esau was a man's man. He was a man's man. He was out in the field. And that tells us that Jacob, you know, he's sort of a mama's boy because he dwelt in tents. Listen to me, we're not talking about little toddlers that are tied to their mother's apron strings. If Esau was old enough to be in the field hunting, then Jacob was old enough to be doing whatever he pleased as well. What this is telling us is there again something about their desire, something about how they wanted to occupy their time. You know what I see when I read this verse? I see that Esau was a man that was growing attached to the country he is living in. He was learning the topography. He was learning where the rivers were. He was learning where the streams were. He was learning where the deer hung out. He was learning where he could go to get a meal. He spent all of his time, listen now, roaming through the world looking for what could satisfy him. 
I'd say there's food at home. If Esau had wanted to eat it. He comes through the door, and Jacob's not starving. Jacob has something to eat. Esau could have had something to eat too. But you know the difference? Esau didn't want what was in the tents. He wanted what was in the field. You say, what, what, what about Jacob? What about him? Isn't that saying he's a mama's boy? Well, hey, Jacob may have been a mama's boy. He may have been a sissy. I don't know if you want to believe that. You go ahead and believe that. I don't really think so. Jacob would go on later in his life to work uh, 14 years so that he could marry a woman. I mean, he was a farmer. He went out. He spent as much time as Esau did, I'm sure, in the field in a sense. But what's the Bible trying to tell us? Uh, let me say that God's people have always been tent dwellers. You go all through the Old Testament and you find we're nomads, we're ramblers. That's who and what we are. You say, why is it, preacher? It don't matter where we go, we're never home. You can go from one end of this world all the way to the other. You can circle around till you get dizzy and you're never going to find a Christian's home. This home, this world is not our home. She played it. I thought about singing it. The Lord wouldn't let me. But she played it there uh, before uh, we got to preaching. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Abraham was a sojourner. He was a Syrian up until God spoke to him. That's what the Bible says. A Syrian ready to perish. After God spoke to him, he wasn't a Syrian no more. He was a sojourner then. He went, he went looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Abraham, he never did find that city while he was looking. His whole life, though God had promised him every direction he could look, every place he could set the sole of his foot on, that that belonged to him. But still Abraham kept a walking because he was a sojourning man looking for a place that was not built with man's hands but with God's hands. Uh, Abraham, he was a twin, tent dweller. What, what about Isaac? Well, Isaac was a tent dweller. In fact, you'll find that uh, whenever Esau comes in, he comes into Isaac's tent. You'll find that whenever Isaac married Rebekah, uh, he took her into Sarah's tent. It didn't change with this family. Always they were tent dwellers. You come down to Jacob and you'll find that Jacob's life is one of rambling and traveling. I mean, he spends his whole life running around and traveling around. In fact, you know that even after Jacob died, he couldn't quit traveling. Uh, he said, I want you when I die. He went into Egypt uh, and followed his son uh, Joseph there. He said, listen to me, when I die, I want you to make me a promise. One of these days, God's going to lead this family out of here, take us back to the promised land that He's promised to us whenever we you make that trip, boys. I want you to find my bones. I want you to dig them up. I want you to take them with you because God's made a promise that we're going home and whether I'm dead or not, I'm going home too. You know, that's true of me and you. <laughs> I, listen, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. I'm looking, listen, I'm not expecting to die in Egypt. I'm expecting for God to take me out of this world alive and take me where He's, uh, where He wants me to be. I, I'm, listen, I'm preaching so much I can't even talk, amen? I'm getting so excited I don't know what to do, amen? I mean, God's made a promise to you and I. I'm looking for the Lord to return. It could happen any moment. It could happen any time. But I've also got another promise. I've got a promise that if I die and my bones are buried in this world, if I am laid down, if I am sown in corruption, Paul said I'd be raised in incorruption. If I'm sown in mortality, I'll be raised in immortality. Listen, my Savior could not be holding by death. I cannot be holding by death. You take my bones... You put them in the graveyard, but you mark her down. There's coming a day when God's going to bust them out of that sod and I'll be raised incorruptible. My bones are going home one day. My bones are going home one day. God's given me a promise. Where'd that come from? Who ordered that? Whew. I want you to see not only their boy, we weren't even preaching on that. The Bible says in verse 28, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We're going to see why that is here in a moment. Look at verse number 29. We see their brawling, their birth, and their boyhoods. But I want you to notice their bargain. Verse number 29 says this, And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Let me say this, the tent dweller was satisfied, but the field roamer wasn't. Uh, you know, I, I believe the Bible says about him in, in verse uh, number, uh, where is it, 27, that he was a cunning hunter. But do you know that it don't matter how good you are at satisfying your flesh, there'll come a time that you come home empty. doesn't matter how many needles you'll stick in your arm, doesn't matter how many pills you'll swallow, how many gallons of liquor that you'll drink, there'll come a time you'll come home empty. Esau came home empty. 
He came home and he was faint. He come home and he was ready to die. All that hunting had just about put him in a grave. How many of you could testify that all that hunting about put you in a grave? He comes home. Look what it says. The Bible says, verse number 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Now they sent in the message, but let me say this. What you, you are what you eat. I know we don't like to hear that, amen? But that's the truth. Now, maybe not in the physical sense. I mean, maybe in the physical sense, but that ain't what I'm preaching on. But in the spiritual sense. You feed yourself on the carnality of this world, you'll be a carnal Christian. You know, part of the problem is, is we spend all week living in carnality and then come in and try to act spiritual on Sunday. It don't work that way. Whatever you feed, that's going to have the dominance. Esau, listen now. Esau was red and hairy all over. They didn't call him red because he was red and hairy all over. They started calling him red whenever he ate of the red pottage. Because what he did was what finally defined who and what he was. You may have a carnal nature. You may have a sin nature. But that doesn't have to define who you are. Listen to me. You live in sin. That's how God sees you. Oh, we don't like that kind of preaching. I understand I'm justified in Jesus Christ. But I understand also that God sees me for who and what I am. We live in sin. We live in carnality. God's going to treat us like a rebellious child because that's just exactly what we are. We may have a sin nature, but that doesn't have to define us calls him Edom. By the way, it's interesting that his, uh, his uh, descendants were called Edomites. What you eat is not only going to affect you, it's going to affect those that come after you. Uh, it's going to affect those that are after you. Don't expect your children to be spiritual if you're carnal. I didn't say don't expect your children to get saved if you're lost. That We could preach that if we wanted to preach that. I'm preaching to save people tonight. Listen now, don't expect your children to be spiritual if you're carnal. If you don't ever worship, don't expect them to worship. You don't ever read your Bible, don't expect them to read, your, read their Bible. You don't ever pray, don't expect them to pray. You don't ever brag on the Lord, don't expect them to ever brag on the Lord because they're watching who and what you are and what you do. He goes to Jacob. I, I didn't like it any better than you did. Don't get upset. He goes to Jacob. He says, feed me with this red pottage. Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. So Esau goes to Jacob says, I want some of what you got. Jacob says, you're going to have to give something up to get it. Let me say that any time that we make up our minds to satisfy that which is spiritual, we've got to give up that which is carnal and vice versa. Any time that there, there's, it's always a trade. It's always a trade. You give in to the flesh, you miss something spiritual. You give in to that which is spiritual, you're going to have to deny something of the flesh. And notice what happens. I like his answer. I mean, I don't, but it's funny. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? You know what he's saying? He's saying, Well, I ain't using it right now. And I'm getting ready to die. So what's the purpose? Could I sum this up in a different way? You know what his philosophy is? Eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow we die. He's saying, What good is it going to do to me? I'm dying. What good will it do to me? I'm going to leave this world. What's the purpose of this birthright? I'm at the point of dying. You know, let me tell you something, and I'm not even going to really preach on it, but let me just tell you something tonight. You You know what fasting does? Fasting makes our flesh cry out. You know what happens when you fast? I know you don't believe it, but I've done it some. You know what happens when you fast? You know what your flesh says? Your flesh says, I'm at the point to die. I'm at the point to die. You'd be amazed how big of a whiner you are. You go two days without eating. Uh, you'd be amazed how loud your flesh gets after about two days of not eating. It's that third day. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a spiritual truth, but, but it's just, I mean, it's a biological fact about fast. If you've ever fasted, you know that, that the, man, those first two days, they're rough, but you come around to that third day and it seems like something plateaus out. I don't know if that's got to do with the resurrection, but I kind of like it, so I'm going to believe that. Amen? But your flesh is crying out. Your flesh is saying, I'm at the point to die. What's the purpose? What's the point in all this? The purpose of fasting is that we might buffet our flesh, that we might bring it under subjection, that we might remind our spiritual man that he can have victory over our natural man, and that we might remind our natural man that he's got a day coming when he's going to be denied, not just once, not just twice, not just every now and then, but there's coming a day when he's going to be eradicated. 
Esau says, I'm about to die. I've got something that is spiritual. I've got something that is valuable, but it's only valuable if I can live. Jacob says, that's what I want. Jacob says, I'm not interested in the lentils. I'm not interested in that which satisfies in the moment. I'm not interested in that which fills my belly, which graces my taste buds. Jacob says, I want that which has a promise attached to it. Can I just give you real quick some things about the birthright? Let me just share with you three things that the birthright implies. And by the way, the birthright and the blessing are two different things. Uh, this is the point. And, and Esau is going to say later that Jacob beat him out of both the birthright and the blessing. But that's not true. Jacob did deceive Isaac so that he could get the blessing. But Esau gave away the birthright. And the book of Hebrews 12 tells us that if he hadn't given away the birthright, he wouldn't have got deceived out of the blessing. Let me say that the only way to the blessing of God is through the birthright of God. You say, how do I get a birthright? Well, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. That's how you get that birthright. You say, what did that mean? Well, let, let me just give you a couple things. Let me say, first off, the birthright meant prosperity. Prosperity, that's what it meant. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the, the birthright, the inheritance of the father, the oldest son would get a double portion of everything that was given. So, for instance, whenever Jacob had 12 sons, the oldest who was Reuben, he wouldn't have just got one twelfth. In fact, he would have gotten two twelfths. He would have gotten one sixth. And the other boys would have had to have divided the rest of the ten between them. It literally meant being set up, so to speak, for the rest of your life. It meant having all your needs met. It meant getting a double portion. In fact, it's almost like you was getting that that belonged to you and that that belonged to somebody else. Kind of like if you had had another brother. Listen now. Oh, listen now. Kind of like if you'd had another brother. That brother had died and put you in his will and you got everything that belonged to that other brother. You didn't just get what you deserved, but you got what he deserved. Can I say that for the believer? Oh, my. Can I say that for the believer, we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We don't just get what belongs to us, but we've got an older brother. He's died for us. He put us in His will upon Calvary that if we'd come unto Him, uh, He'd accept us. That if we'd come unto Him, He'd give us rest. That if we'd call unto Him, He'd save us. That if we'd come unto Him, He'd in no wise cast us out. We don't just get what we've got. We get what He's got. It meant prosperity. I want you to notice the second thing. Not only did it mean prosperity, but it meant prominence. Or can I give you a big $10 word? Uh, progenitorship. The, the child with the birthright, he was the one that the Messiah would be coming from. Let me say that, that God in His sovereignty knew that Jacob was going to uh, be, get the birthright. God understood that. But, but if things had worked, if Esau had not done uh, what he did in bargaining away his birthright, then it would have been through Esau that the Messiah would have come. Now, I understand that's a little what-if uh, theology, but you bear with me because we're going to preach on it. it. It means something. He lost, listen now, he lost his association and fellowship with the Messiah. Let me say, he did not lose his relation to the Messiah. He's still related. In fact, you'll find the whole book of Obadiah is about how the Edomites, being the brethren of the Israelites, how that they, when they turned their back upon the Israelites, when, when, when uh, the Babylonians came and, 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 and sacked Jerusalem, God, is, uh, God judged them because of what they did. Esau was still kin to the Messiah. But when you talk about the patriarchs, listen now, you don't talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. You talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lost his association, his fellowship with the Messiah. Notice the third thing, he lost the priesthood. You say, whoa, what do you mean, preacher? What do you mean, priesthood? I didn't know that Jacob was a priest. I didn't know that Esau was a priest. Well, now listen now, this is during the patriarchal period. The Levitical priesthood has not been established yet. And so you know who was the high priest of a family? The high priest was always the oldest male of the family. And so the oldest brother, part of his birthright was he would have been the high priest. You know that the Bible tells us that you and I, we've been made priests unto our God. 
Let me say, I thank God that I don't have to go in a little phone booth with a, with a cloth screen between me and another sinful, unrighteous man that's just as in need of forgiveness as I'm in need of forgiveness and confess my sins and ask Him to give me a laundry list of, of, of long and repetitious prayers and a laundry list of, of, of fines and fees I've got to pay the local church so that I can get some kind of forgiveness. We preached this morning about the throne room of grace. We've got a great high priest, but let me say that as a believer, you and I are individual priests. We can appear unto God, not in the capacity of a Roman Catholic priest, because let me just say this, because it just feels good to say it, that the Roman Catholic priest has no scriptural precedent whatsoever in any way, shape, fashion, or form. If your mama or pop-pop was a Roman Catholic, I hope they put their faith in Jesus Christ, because if they put it in the church, they died and went to hell. If they put it in their baptism, They died and went to hell. They may have had a Catholic funeral. That wouldn't send them to hell. I hope that they knew the Lord. It may upset you. It may make you mad. But the truth of the matter is, there is no scriptural precedent for a Roman Catholic priest. None whatsoever. Nor for their Papa either. Nor nor for the Madonna either. No scriptural precedent. But just as the Old Testament priests, there were many of them. And there was one great high priest. There was one great high priest, and he occupied the presence of God. And then there were many other priests that ministered daily and did things. And in that same capacity, we have one great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, that's passed into the heavens. But even you and I, we've been made priests unto God. That's the individual priesthood of the believer. Now you say, wait a minute preacher, are you saying that a person can lose that privilege? Are you saying that a person can lose that capacity? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this uh, that that familiarity and that fellowship that we have to come boldly unto the throne room of grace does not exist and is not there. I'm not saying we don't have access. I'm saying we don't have boldness when we've been living in sin. We still have access. But we don't have boldness when we've been living in sin. And in the same way, those things belong unto the spiritual man. When you satisfy the flesh, you don't get any of those things because they don't belong to the flesh anymore. The birthright's been traded. The younger son has got it. And the spiritual man is the only means to get those things. I'm not saying you lose your salvation if you live in sin. But what I am saying is this. All those blessings that you have in Jesus Christ, you don't enter enter into those things when you're living in sin. How are those things accessed? How do we gain those things? The Bible says by exceeding great and precious promises. When we've been living in sin, when we've been doing that which is unrighteous, we shy away from the promise of God. We flee from that which God has blessed us with and promised us with. And it's as though we lose those promises. Even though we've not, those promises are still true. They're still valid. We don't claim them and we don't enter into them. Same thing's true about the prominence. We lose our fellowship. We don't lose our relationship with Him, but we lose our fellowship with Him. Esau's still related to the Messiah. Oh, when they talk about the Messiah, they don't talk about Esau. They talk about Jacob. And he lost that priesthood. I'm going to move on. I don't have time for any, anything else. Look with me. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter number 12. Can you do that, Hebrews chapter number 12? And I, I, I'm not going to get to say as much as I want to say about this because we're running out of time. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We see their brawling. We see their birth. We see their boyhoods. And we see their bargain. But I want you now to notice there, or could I say more specifically, Esau's bitterness that took place. Hebrews chapter 12 has this commentary on the life of Esau. It says in verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. By the way, that doesn't say lest the grace of God fail of any man. That doesn't say lest the grace of God fail of any man. You see, my salvation is not based upon me failing the grace of God. It'd be based upon the grace of God failing me. I didn't do anything uh, to warrant or to earn God's salvation. You say, preacher, what about those that fall from grace? Listen, you and I both know we study our Bible. Paul is not talking about losing your salvation. You you say, what you know? What what about those whom he spews out? Let me remind you, uh, friend. I'm not in his mouth. I'm in his hand, and no man shall pluck him out of the Father's hand. 
It doesn't say that the grace of God is going to fail you. It says you're going to fail the grace of God. It doesn't say that God's going to give up on you. It says there's going to be times you give up on God. And he says, lest you fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The word bitterness is not found a whole lot in the Bible. And it's especially not found in the New Testament. But the key verse that deals with bitterness in the New Testament is associated with the life of Esau. Let me say that the only person that the Bible says that God ever hated, and there's a context we're going to talk about, but the only person that the Bible says that God ever hated was Esau. Now, I understand that that's a comparative hate in a, in a sense. I understand that God is talking about how He chose Jacob uh, for the birthright and the blessing instead of choosing Esau. That doesn't in any way mean that Esau didn't have a choice to make. doesn't in any way infringe upon Esau's free will or Esau's decision. Esau had a decision in the matter, but it's a comparative statement. But let me, can I plug that into the type that we're talking about? Can I say this, that God hates your flesh. God loves your spiritual man. God hates the natural man. You say, how do you know that? Well, he's doing away with it one day. In fact, he is so concerned with doing away with it that he sent his own son to the cross of Calvary to die in our place. He gave the ultimate gift. He, listen, his son became what we were so that we could become what he is. And when his son became what we were, God, the Bible says he's smitten of God and afflicted. He's stricken, smitten of God. and afflicted. When he became what we were, God reared back his fist of judgment and applied it to the blessed face of his only begotten son. That's how much God... God hates our natural man. God hated Esau. It doesn't mean that God didn't love Esau like He loves any sinner. But it means that when there was a choice to be made, because Esau had bargained away the birthright, God chose Jacob for the blessing. Let me say that again. Because Esau bargained away the birthright, that was Esau's free will decision. In response to that, Though he tried to repent, he found no place of repentance. And God chose Jacob for the blessing. Bitterness is infected in the life of Esau. In fact, his whole life is defined by bitterness. I want you to notice three responses real quick. Notice first off the confrontation of bitterness. Uh, Listen to what it says in verse number 20 or 34 of chapter 26. You don't have to turn there. It's just two verses, but I'll read it to you. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. By the way, can I just say this? I don't think that Jacob was a mama's boy and that Esau was a daddy's boy. And I don't think that Rebekah helped Jacob because she loved Jacob anymore. I think that Rebekah was bitter over the decisions that Esau had made. They had made it plain and clear to Esau. Esau, don't take a wife of the Canaanite. Whatever you do, don't take a wife of the Canaanite. Esau said, that's what I want, so that's what I'm going to do. Let me say that the flesh is always that way. It responds in spite to the spiritual man and to God. Your flesh will do things with the express purpose of trying hurt God. That's why if anything is sinful, your flesh wants it. doesn't matter what it is. And you can know that it's going to hurt you. You can know that it's going to wreck you. You can know that it's going to make a mess of your life. But if you're not surrendered to the Spirit of God time and time again, your flesh will pursue after that which knows it will destroy it. I promise you that Esau knew it was a bad idea to take the daughters of Canaan to be his wife. He understood the cultural differences. He understood what it mean to him. But it didn't matter if it hurt Isaac and if it hurt Rebekah. He'd do it because he had a bitterness in his heart and life. Notice the second thing. Notice the cry 
of bitterness. We can't read all of it, but look in chapter 27. Look at verse number 30. Now, Jacob has gone in and has stolen the blessing. Rebekah has helped Jacob deceive Isaac. Why? Not because she loved Jacob more, but because she is bitter at Esau. She didn't want to see the birthright pass into the hands of Canaanite grandchildren. So she goes and she helps Jacob steal the blessing. The Bible says in verse 30, And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn son Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly, and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me, and I have eaten of all before thou camest? And have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. Said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. While Esau was in the field getting that which satisfied the flesh, Jacob was in the tent getting that which satisfied the spirit. When he comes in, he cries out in bitterness over what he's lost. Let me say this. You'll never, ever, ever, ever satisfy the flesh. It'll leave you empty, and it'll leave you bitter, and it'll leave you angry. There's no one more bitter than a Christian out of the will of God. No one more filled with hate and malice and a Christian that's out of the will of God. Let me say that, that there's no hurt that's deeper than church hurt. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. And, I, and, I, and folks get hurt in church, and I'm not saying they don't. But can I just propose, can I give you the opinion of a pastor? There's some of these folks that truly do get hurt, and they're bitter over that hurt. But can I say that there's some folks, they don't get out of church because they got hurt. They get hurt because they got out of church. They get out of church because they want to be out of church. And then all of a sudden they find some little problem, some little something, some little whisper of, of a rumor, of a gossip that took place. And that's their rallying point. That's their fortifying place. That's where they dig in. And they want to tell everybody that they run across. They want to say, hey, listen, I used to go to church, but then I got hurt and now I'm bitter. The reality is that's not how it happened. They didn't, they didn't used to go to church and then they got hurt and they got bitter. They used to go to church, they got out of church, they got bitter and they decided to get hurt. All of a sudden now everybody's against them. Now everybody is angry at them when the reality is it's just their own bitterness being manifest in their life. I'm not saying folks don't, I'm not saying it never happened, but I'm saying that's the case with some folks. If I Listen, if I was like the old time preachers, I'd start giving you names because I could. Notice finally the consequence. Verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 12. For ye know how that afterward when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. First, he asks for forgiveness. He says, Father, bless me, even me also. He begs Isaac to give him a blessing. By the way, Isaac does give him a blessing, but he doesn't give him the same blessing. And then what does he do? And I'm just, going to, I'm just going to touch on it. He goes out and he takes a daughter of Ishmael. You know why he did that? He knew he couldn't go uh, to Rebekah's family because Jacob was going to Rebekah's family. So he goes to some of Isaac's family. And he takes a daughter of the Ishmaelites to try to do something to appease his father. Let me say... That when You know what the flesh does? First thing the flesh does, when you've messed your life up, the flesh wants to come before God. I'm talking about the flesh now, not the spirit. The flesh wants to come before God and, and not confess anything. By the way, isn't it interesting? We didn't read it, but you know what Esau goes on to say? Esau goes on to say, these two times Jacob has stolen the birthright and the blessing from me. You know, the flesh never wants to confess sin. Jacob, uh, Esau didn't say, 
I sold the birthright, so now I've lost the blessing. That's how you can tell it's a confession in the flesh, not a confession in the Spirit. When we come before God with excuses instead of contrition, that's a confession in the flesh. That's not a confession in the Spirit. He says, I was stole, these were robbed from me. He tries to confess, he tries to ask forgiveness, and then what does he do? He tries to work for it. Let me say, there's some things you lose in your life you don't get back. There's some things, don't matter how much you repent, you don't get them back. You make a wreck of your life, and it's a wreck. Now, God can pick up the pieces. God can make something out of your life, but there's some things you don't get back. Some of you in this room looking at me like a calf staring at a new gate. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have seen things you can't unsee. You've done things you can't undo. You've repented. You've asked God's forgiveness. God has forgiven you. But that doesn't mean that it takes away the effects of the flesh in your life. Esau had to live with his choices. Esau's people were utterly destroyed and extinct. The Arabians came in and about 540 B.C. destroyed the Edomites. They were completely eradicated. They were, they were, they were absorbed into a few other surrounding communities. Those are the refugees that left. I'm looking forward to the day. I'm all preached out. I ain't got nothing out. I'm looking forward to the day when the flesh is eradicated. But let me just give you this final warning. You'll never be satisfied in the flesh. Never, ever, ever. The only way you're going to find peace and satisfaction is through the surrender to the Spirit of God and through the indulging of the spiritual man.